Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Stolen Goodbyes podcast with me, Karen Rice. This is being recorded remotely due to the COVID-19 restrictions. Today I'm joined by Lindsay Simmons, who lost her father, Kevin Morgans, to COVID-19 on May the 3rd. He was 65 years old. Welcome, Lindsay. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Karen. I just wanted to ask what your dad was like as a person and also as a father. He was amazing. I know everyone says that about their dad, but he was so lovely. He was just one of the loveliest people. He had a heart of gold. He, he would do he would do anything he could. He, he was, you know, so nice. There's nobody I've ever met have had a bad word to say about him. Everyone, even now, I mean, you know, it was sort of, we're coming up to what we talking three months ago, you know, nearly four months ago that he passed away and people still when I see him on the streets, talk about him and say, can't believe it, you know, it should have happened to some, you know, it, it just, he was such a nice person. It, it, we shouldn't have lost him the way we did. And um, did he have a nickname, Lindsay? Um, a nickname, yeah, well, he had, he had a few, but um, he was fondly known as Kev Prue uh, around the Ronda Valleys where we lived because he was an insurance salesman. And he, he I think he sold insurance to most people around the Ronda. And a funny story is uh, I met my husband eight years ago and um, he actually sold him his first pension at the age of 17 when he first started work. So uh, it's a very small world up here in the Ronda. But yeah, Kev Pro, because he worked for Prudential Insurance and, and more or less sold everyone around the Ronda insurance policies and pensions. And I think there's very few people who who didn't have a policy of some sort of him. And did he then, did they recognise each other then when they met, you know, all those years later? Yeah, loads of, and even when I, if I happened to say who my father was, oh my God, I know him, he sold my mother insurance, or he used to come to the house to collect the money for the insurance, where in the days when he used to be paid across the doorstep, and, and a story that, uh, that someone told me was that he would, if someone said, oh, I, yeah, I spilled a glass of wine on the, on the carpet, and he'd say, no, 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 you spilled some paint on it, didn't you? So that they'd be able to claim it off their insurance. <laughs> so he'd be helping people to make sure they could get their claims go through. Um, yeah, so he was that kind, almost too good that he might get himself in a bit of trouble. But he was always always looking out for other people and trying to do the best by them. I sounded brilliant. Yeah, he was. And as the dad, can you describe how what he was like as a father? He was just... Oh, he was just so good. He he did. I mean, he worked so hard. He, he worked, you know, he always worked full time. I can't ever remember from a, a young child, my father not being in work. So he did, you know, he worked to be able to give us the best. And we were very lucky Um, compared to a lot of families who live within the Ronda. We counted ourselves extremely lucky. We had holidays abroad. We went to America twice as a family. And, and we are aware that there was a lot of families who didn't get that opportunity um, where we lived. You know, he he had he worked really hard to give us everything that we wanted, really, and to give us all the opportunities that that we we possibly could have. I think in his later years, it was difficult for him because he had Parkinson's disease. He didn't, he wasn't able to do all the things he'd love to have done, like with his grandchildren. He'd have loved to have 
taking them to the park and being able to play with them and things but his mobility was quite limited so he wasn't able to do that but I just know that whenever we were with him he was happy you know whenever we spent time with him he was laughing and joking and he was just he was just a ray of sunshine even when he was having bad days he'd never complain he was just always making sure we were okay and you know check checking that that we had everything we needed what do you miss about him on a daily basis his phone calls he'd probably ring me about four or five times a day and in work i'd have to say dad you've got to stop phoning me now i'll ring you when i finish work and funnily enough i was making sausage casserole last night and in my head it popped into my head and i thought right i'll pot some of this up for dad now and i'll take him a pot up so it was just the daily day-to-day things that you know and i just forget that he's not here and i think right i've got quiet 10 minutes i'll give him a quick ring so it's just having that chat with him and just in in being there you know it's just so it's it's still a point where sometimes I can't grasp that he's not here anymore I can't think about it you know this we we were building a flat for him out the rear of our property for him to come and live with us and I recently had a conversation with my husband saying you know this Christmas was meant to be different he was meant to be with us and you know he'd always come down for Christmas dinner but he didn't like leaving his flat for long so he'd, he'd come down for a bit of dinner and then he'd go home you know and it would have been lovely to have him here to wake up for Christmas. And, you know, he wanted to, he always said to my little boy, oh, when dad, dad comes to live with you now, we'll have breakfast together, shall we? And and we never got to do that. So we've got, you know, we've got an empty, an empty flat at the back of our house now, which we kind of have to try and find something to do now. What if we'd started building the flat six months earlier? He'd have been home with us and we could have protected him better. It just leaves so many questions for us to live with now um i just um i don't know i wish i could have protected him i wish i could have protected him more um so obviously he had uh, parkinson's but he was living yep. independently of you and obviously yep, you yep. were regularly visiting and looking out for him yeah so so what happened how did he fall ill with COVID-19? Um, well he was it was a bit of deterioration in his cognitive ability really he became really confused all of a sudden and um, to the point that like we we thought he had a um, urinary tract infection a water infection he had antibiotics for it they didn't have any effect and it became a, it came to a point where i was i was visiting him every four hours to give him his medication um but that wasn't enough he was he was i was hiding his meds because he was getting really confused and then he was telling me he found tablets which turned out to be bits of plastic which i don't even know to this day where he got them from and he thought they were tablets so at that point i was like right something i i can't keep him safe anymore now um, and that was when the GP advised us to take him into hospital to have further testing done and he was admitted because he was dehydrated and he had a bit of a swollen leg and obviously the confusion there was absolutely no mention at that point of COVID-19 um he'd been self-isolating when was that uh let me have I, the exact date um, it was about it was four weeks before he actually got diagnosed with it so he was in hospital for a month um before he was so it would have been it would have been the beginning of April okay. that he actually got admitted into hospital um yeah probably the end of March beginning of April that he got admitted into hospital um and obviously I just got this you know took him in and he had some tests done and then they said yeah we're admitting him and and he just got wheeled away in a wheelchair and I remember him going into a lift looking at me and I'm I breaking my heart because I that was it he just went I wasn't allowed up to the ward with him and and I didn't the, the the next time I saw him after that was when he was already on end of life care, which was about four and a half weeks later. He was thinking, "What are you doing? 
why are you leaving me here? That's what I felt like he was, he was really confused anyway. And I just, he didn't want to be in hospital. And I kept saying, it's all right, dad, you'll have a couple of days in you now. They're saying you're a bit dehydrated, a couple of days and, um, you know, you'll be home and we can, we can get everything sorted, you know? So, um, yeah, it was just kind of, that was the beginning of the end really. Oh my word. So it was just, yeah, from nowhere. And well, as far as we are, as far as we are concerned, he caught that virus on a clean ward in our hos- in our local hospital. So what what happened in the interim? Describe. What, um, what there was lots of, obviously, Parkinson's medication. There was lots of changes to his medication. Lots of things went on. We have, we have had to put a complaint in to the, the local health board because I'm not happy with the level of care that he received. There was very limited communication with us as a family. I, I was ringing probably twice a day when he first went in because he was so... Some of the obviously medication changes and the treatments he was going through, he was very confused. So he wasn't answering his mobile phone. So for the first five or four or five days, I didn't speak to him, which for me, I mean, I spoke to him four or five times a day. And then to go from that to not speaking to him at all, I didn't really know what was going on. And you'd ring the ward and the nursing staff. I appreciate they were probably really busy, but it was very sketchy. And for, yeah, he's fine. And I'm thinking, well, he's not fine because he's not answering his phone. He's not ringing me. He's not fine. I've brought him in. He's really unwell. Please, you know, don't say he's fine because that's not giving me any reassurance of what's happening. Um, on the odd occasion, I'd catch a nurse who was willing to spend that little bit of extra, and I'd say, you need to tell me what's going on. I, I want to know what, what medication he's been had, having, what treatment he's received. You know, on the odd occasion, I would catch a nurse who was able to actually give me a little bit more detailed information, but it was quite rare. I didn't speak to a doctor for four weeks no doctors or consultants called me the first time I spoke to a doctor was when a doctor phoned me four weeks after my father had got admitted um, to tell me that he'd had some seizures and that it was very likely he was going to come out of hospital so that came like out of nowhere because previous to that a few days before I'd been having a conversation with a nurse who had told me he was having a care plan put in place for him to come home your expectation was that he would come home Absolutely. Until until you had that conversation with the doctor. Yeah. And it was then that that doctor told me he was being moved to a COVID ward because he'd spiked a temperature. So he hadn't actually been, he hadn't, he'd been tested that day, but he hadn't been diagnosed with COVID-19 at that point, but he had been tested because he'd spiked a temperature. So, and it was also in that conversation that I was informed that he'd signed a DNR form two weeks earlier which nobody had told me about. I, we already, we'd already put power of attorney in place in the event that my father's ability to make decisions was impaired. Nobody spoke to me about that. When I did, I did actually mention to one of the nurses and I was almost laughed off the phone that don't be so ridiculous. Of course, he's got mental capacity, but the man I took into hospital, as far as I was concerned, didn't. He was very confused. He was hallucinating. He thought there were people in his flat. So it was very much like, I don't understand if he was making improvements, why he was asked to sign a DNR form. And um, how do you think he would feel about the fact that he had signed a DNR form when you say he wasn't, you know, compass mentis? Yeah, I, 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 I have requested. Now we've put a, an official complaint in and I've requested 
I want to see mental capacity forms. I want to see mental capacity assessments because even doing one of them, I think I should have been as his main carer and his next of kin. Nobody even discussed whether that was one of them was done with me, with him rather, while he was in hospital. But nobody discussed it with me. You know, should we do one? Do you think we need to do one as his main carer and his next of kin? There was no discussions about his mental capacity at all with me. And I don't think he had the ability at that point to make those decisions. The man I know wanted to come home to his family. He he wanted to come home. He he couldn't wait to... All he said was, I can't wait to be in your house, in my flat, with you, and have breakfast with Toby, my son. You know, wake up to him. And he kept saying, Toby, are you going to come and wake Dad Dad up? That's what he called him, Dad Dad. Are you going to come and wake me up in the morning so we can have breakfast before you go to school? You know, it was... I That man... I don't think would have signed that form. Why do you think they got that DNR signed? I I have fr- friends who are in the nursing industry, and I was told that because of COVID nineteen, there was pressure on staff to get patients to sign those forms. I don't know how accurate that is, but. Obviously, then it makes sense that if they've signed that form, there's not so much pressure to be able to provide intensive care, uh, a ventilator, which my father was offered neither of those. Um, Despite after a seizure, he then had aspirational pneumonia because he'd inhaled stomach contents during the seizure, but was not offered intensive care or a ventilator. So do you you feel that they felt he wasn't worth fighting for or he had too many issues or what do you feel? Yeah. I think he ticked too many boxes. He's got Parkinson's, yes. He's sort of more vulnerable, yes. He's over the age of 60, yes. You know, I feel like he ticked too many boxes. Like, I know for a fact that there were, there's field hospitals in Wales, South Wales, that have not been touched. There were ventilators that were available. He, I think he, my personal opinion was he should have, been, everybody should have been worth giving that opportunity to go on a ventilator to go into intensive care but the doctor told me oh there's you know there's not much hope for him so we won't and and a, a man that poorly isn't going to respond to antibiotics in 24 hours but after that they took him off and he was put on end of life care and he fought for a week on nothing only on morphine which i was told he'd be unconscious for a week and he was and he was conscious until the, the day before he died i went down there and he was conscious so um talk me through from from the time that the doctor told you, gave you that news that he might not make it to when he passed? Okay, um, well, that was, a, that was a Friday evening that I had received that phone call off the doctor. And that was when I found out he'd started having seizures, which he'd never had before. And during one of the seizures, which lasted 20 minutes, he'd breathed in, obviously, stomach contents, which then resulted in him getting aspirational pneumonia. And he said at that point he'd been tested for COVID as well because he'd... Uh, raised the temperature. Uh, it was on that, I think I had a phone call the following morning and the doctor then said that they were going to put him on antibiotics for 24 hours from the Saturday to the Sunday. And if he didn't make any improvements in that 24 hours, they would take everything off him and they, he'd be put on end of life care. Um, I must have rang about five or six times on that because he would be moved to a COVID war then. I was allowed to ring as many times as I wanted. Prior to that, I wasn't allowed to, after about a week of him being in hospital, I was told I wasn't allowed to ring anymore because they were far too busy to answer phone calls. So as you can appreciate, for families at home, not knowing what their relatives were going through, that was horrific in itself. 
But then when he was moved to a COVID ward, I was allowed to start ringing as much as I wanted to. So I was unfortunately bombarding him about five times, six times a day because I wanted to know what was going on. Unfortunately, by the Sunday morning, um, he hadn't shown any signs of improving or responding to the antibiotics. So I was told then he was just going to be put on end of life care. And after the IV that he was on ran out, he wouldn't have another one and he would be put on to morphine. Uh, I was told it's probably, I was luckier than some other family members in that once he was put on end of life care, I was told that I was allowed to go down. I was allowed to visit him. It was on a COVID ward. So I was told that it was at my own risk. It was very high risk because he had pneumonia and he was coughing and he was receiving suction to clear out, obviously, the mucus. It was very high risk and it was at my own risk that I went. But there was I had absolutely no doubt that I was going to be going down to see him. I was fortunate enough that I, I did spend, I did visit him four times before he passed away. So he lasted from the Sunday, when they put him on end of life care on the Sunday, he actually lived a week and I visited him four times in that week and, and it's horrifying for me because I remember the first time I went down after, I mean, it was four weeks. I hadn't seen him for four weeks and two days. Um, and he was, he looked, he was conscious and I think he knew, he recognized me straight away, my voice. I had obviously it must have been very scary for him because I had a face mask on, a visor, gloves, you know, I couldn't kiss him. I couldn't touch him. I, but I I do know, I think he knew it was me because he, he responded as soon as I spoke. But that's the most harrowing thing for me is that he looked absolutely petrified. That first time I saw him, sorry. I think he knew exactly what was going on. And I think he knew he was dying and nobody was doing anything. And he looked absolutely terrified. And that's that's the image that I, I, I I'll never, ever, ever forget that. And I didn't know what I was supposed to say to him because I didn't know if anyone had actually told him what was happening. If any of the staff had explained to him that was it and they weren't trying anymore. I didn't really know if, if anyone had said anything. So I just tried to chat away and tell him we all loved him. And, and what do you say? You can't say everything's going to be fine because it wasn't. It was just so confusing and scary and horrible. And then they put him on a morphine driver after that and um I, I was under the impression that when someone was on morphine they'd more or less be unconscious really but my father was conscious every single time i visited he opened his eyes he looked at me he couldn't speak obviously he couldn't talk he couldn't say anything and i know that there were times where i thought my father was really emotional and he always he would always cry even when he was happy he would cry and there were times where I thought I think he is crying but I don't really know I know he would have told us that he loved us my brother did come down and visit once for me he was really scared and you know not comfortable in that environment but he did come down once and I said look this is your last chance this is it like we're not going to see him again you're gonna have to come down and and he responded to him so he was conscious up until I, I, he was still conscious on the sat, the last Saturday I saw him. He was still conscious and he wasn't until, and, and I rang on the Sunday morning. This was a week later. He was still alive and I rang and I was, I always rang about 11 o'clock. Um, and this particular day, some, I don't know what had happened. I don't know if we were out walking or something, but I was a bit later ringing. It was about half past 12, quarter to one. And I remember 
going through, I was actually recently, because I was writing a complaint recently, I went through my phone and it was about quarter to one I rang and said, you know, how is he? And, and all they'd say was, oh, he's stable for now. That's all I'd ever get. He's doing, oh, he's doing fine. And, and I, I, in my head, I'm thinking, how can you say he's doing fine? He's dying. You know, you've left him to die. I don't know why you could say he's doing fine because he's not. And it was about an hour later that I had a phone call to say he'd gone. So it was just, you know, it was just so, it was so surreal because I wanted nothing more than to be with my father at the end. But I wasn't visiting every day because I was so scared of bringing something home to my family. I mean, I was absolutely adamant that I was going to get it if I hadn't had it. I, I, you know, we'd, had, we'd all had a bout of tonsillitis not long before lockdown. And I don't know if that was it. I don't know. But I was absolutely adamant after visiting that COVID ward, you know, being told that it was super high risk. And my father in particular was. I was adamant I'd get it. But I, we, nothing at all. It was so strange and surreal and, and just like that, you know, he was gone and that was it. And it was just surreal. It still is surreal. It's still not, you know, processable, if that's even a word. Were you able to have a funeral? What sort of arrangements did um, you make? We, had, we were allowed to have a funeral with nine of us. Um, and like I said at the beginning, my father was such a popular bloke. People really loved him. And it was very... Um, surreal that you're arranging a funeral for someone who would have had hundreds of people there I, well I, I, I'm now going to say I have no doubt because they lined the streets outside my house and they lined the streets of the village where he lived and I've never seen anything like it for someone local before um, he would have a funeral there'd have been people you know um, for miles I think um, but yeah it was just nine of us and then it was kind of we didn't have any family cars, um, so I couldn't, you know, I wanted to be with my brother. And although my, my parents were set, divorced many years ago, um, they were still friends, you know. They still shared children and grandchildren. It was really difficult for my mother because she couldn't comfort her children. You know, the, the most human natural instinct is to hold somebody when going through and I just remember standing outside the crematorium and I couldn't even give my brother a hug sorry you know I, I just had to stand there and I literally I can remember saying to him I can't believe we're doing this it just seemed really surreal the whole thing it was like um it was like watching a film play out it was very very surreal and it still is it still is to the point that I can't, I'm not ready to go yet to, you know, type an email out about everything he's gone through because it just doesn't seem real. What What's happened? You know, we can't even. We I had a phone call from the funeral, funeral directors yesterday because obviously we couldn't inter his ashes. We can't do that yet. Um, or we couldn't at the time. So we had a, it was literally a for our service in the crematorium. Um, and then we went home. You know, and I know that if we'd had a week, it'd have been full of people talking and laughing about him. And, you know, it would have been, it, it would have been what lots of people need after the sadness of a funeral. 
the, the better part is you get to talk to so many people who you might not realize had things with him. Friends who've, who've contacted, or my father's friends from many years ago who have made contact through social media, and I'm so grateful for that. Uh, you know, the only way I could write his eulogy um, was talking to someone who I've never met before, but who would message me and said, I'm so sorry, and then told me stories about him in school um, and about, you know, things they were doing as teenagers that they shouldn't have been and and that was what got us through a lot of things you know see is there a good story is there a good story from from them that you got to share um yeah i'm not sure what a public it should be (laughs) Uh, i remember it one of his friends telling me that they joined um a drinking club i think it was a thing in the late 60s at the age of 16 they were members of a an oog drinking club in our valley um and that um he liked cider which we knew that he very much liked cider um he, he loved he loved playing the drums uh and he liked going to see live bands and and i remember he always used to tell us this story mind and we used to laugh about it that he was in a club seeing a band at 16 and i think he'd got drunk and the local bobby as they would say then the local police officer um said you better get home kevin you better get home and then he thought he'd got away with it and and then obviously the in the valleys the community how it works is everybody knows everybody and i think over a pint the police officer told my grandfather my father's father that uh he'd caught him down in this club and so and he'd laugh about it. i thought i got away with that and and he, he went and bloody told him <laughs> You know, so he'd always laugh. We'd always laugh about things like that. But yeah, nice thing. He played in the school band in the Christmas play and things that I wouldn't have known. And that he was good. He, he learned Latin, which he'd never told me. He never told me he did Latin. And yeah, it was um, it was nice to speak to people who. But then you would have. That's what we missed about a, a normal funeral was that I would have got to speak to even more people and got more of those stories, which you kind of need in that time, is to remember you know good times so it's what we missed out on you know what keeps you awake at night that i couldn't i couldn't save him that i couldn't do more that i that he deserved better um and it's just that 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 walking in our room the first time after four weeks of not seeing him and then seeing him for the first time knowing that he was on the end of life care and i think he knew and just the horror of it all and that I wish I could have done more. In all of this, what's the one thing you wish people understood? Um, if you had a message to give to the world about what you've been through with the pandemic <laughs> and the loss. It's not. Father. Lots of people, we all lose parents and you know family members throughout our lives. And it's sad however it happens. But this isn't normal loss. Um, in February, we were, we were living our lives as normal. In March, we were all terrified that we were going to get this virus. Um, I don't think the families who have lost, we weren't ready for it. We weren't prepared for it. And nobody, nobody's prepared to lose somebody, you know, and to deal with bereavement. It's always, always difficult. But there was just no warning how quickly... It would happen how quickly these families' lives have been turned upside down. Our life has been, it's just completely different now. Um, 
and we still we still can't hug people that we want to hug you know I still can't hold my brother and say it's going to be all right but we'll be all right don't worry we get through this together which we will but we haven't been able to share that emotional or, or share our care and our support and we haven't been able to receive it you know I'm very lucky that I've got my husband and my my son and my two stepsons I'm very lucky I've had them to support me through this but I've spoken to people who've lost somebody who are left on their own and they've got nobody and in I'm just, I'm grateful for what I've got, but this isn't normal loss. It's not normal grief. It's, you know, and I, and you can always compare the statistics. I think the difficult thing is we always see, oh, well, it's only 45,000 people die. That many people die of cancer or, you know, diabetes or whatever it might be. But this isn't normal loss. The world was not ready for this. None of us have ever experienced anything like this before. So to play it down that it's not that important because not that many people died. It's just so completely different for us all to try and process. I think that's the biggest thing. It's just please don't, please don't write it off as it's, it's not that important because not that many people died. Because for the ones who did, it was absolutely catastrophic. Okay, thank you. Lindsay, very much for sharing that, and it's very painful. No problem at all.